Hi, I'm Dr. Bob Harrington. And I'm Dr. Fatima Rodriguez. We're excited to announce our third annual Going Back to the Heart of Cardiology in San Diego, California, December 3rd through the 5th. The goal of this conference is to discuss the management of patient diagnoses, network with our peers, and learn new skills. Attend engaging presentations and participate in conference activities, including the keynote by health and fitness expert, Bob Harper. You don't want to miss it. To register, visit medscape.org slash heartofcardio22. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. What's up, cardio nerds? It's Josh Safe, and I'm here again with Dan. We're very excited to present another key installment of our Cardio Nerds ACHD series. In this episode, we will be discussing mental health and ACHD with Dr. Jim Kimber, the ACHD fellow at Medical College of Wisconsin, Dr. Adrian Kovacs from OHSU, and Dr. Lauren Lastinger from Ohio State University. It is my honor to introduce Jim. Jim received his Bachelor of Science at the Ursinus College, where he majored in molecular biology and biochemistry. He went on to get his DO at Lake Erie College of Medicine and received training in internal medicine and cardiology at the Lehigh Valley Network of Hospitals in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He is currently the fellow in ACHD at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's really great to be included in the podcast, especially uh, talking about a discussion that really affects so much of our patient population like mental health. Today, I'm very excited to have the chance to speak with two of the leaders in our field. Our first expert is Dr. Adrian Kovacs. Dr. Kovacs obtained a PhD in 2003 at the University of Memphis and did postdoctoral fellowship in cardiac psychology at the University of Florida in Gainesville and in behavioral cardiology from 2004 to 2006 at the University of Toronto. She is currently a professor of medicine and psychologist at the Knight Cardiovascular Institute at Oregon Health and Science University, and she is the co-director of the OHSU Multidisciplinary Ventricular Arrhythmia Program and the director of Behavioral Cardiovascular Program. I'm also pleased to be joined by our second expert, Dr. Lauren Lastinger. Dr. Lastinger completed medical school at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in Richmond and completed an internship and residency at the Ohio State University and stayed on there for a general cardiology fellowship and adult congenital heart disease at the Ohio State University, where she completed her training in 2019. She is currently faculty at the Wexner Medical Center at the Ohio State University. Both of our guests today are very well published in the fields of behavioral health and congenital heart disease and have really made significant contributions to our practice. And so it is my great pleasure to introduce you to them today. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. This is Adrian Kovacs. I'm really happy to be here with you today. And I'm actually thrilled that Cardio Nerds has chosen to include mental health as one of their topics. That's wonderful to see. I don't know that we would have seen that a decade ago. So I think it's a really impressive step forward. Thank you for having me. That was great. This is Dan Amadero. And obviously, mental health is just such an important part of the patient's care with any patient, but particularly with patients who are basically born with congenital heart disease and have to live a life with it, with so many trials and tribulations and surgeries, big, big life-changing things. So, of course. Thanks so much for having me. I've been a big fan of this podcast for a long time. And so it's an honor to join you all today to talk about what I believe is one of the most important parts about caring for our patients with congenital heart disease. 
It's really great to be joined by both of you. It seems like when we talk about this field, which is so underrepresented in terms of medical education, it's very obvious to see some of the translational effects in our clinical practice. And I'm curious, because of that, what was it that drew you each to the field? And how has your training really influenced you to take a role in, in the mental health of our cardiac patients? Dr. Lastinger, do you have something in particular that really drew you to this? You know, I'm coming table with my background in adult congenital heart disease first. And what I noticed is that mental health is something we encounter in clinic every single day. And ACHD, it's almost never the main reason for the clinic visit, but certainly it deeply impacts our patients' healthcare experiences. For example, I might be seeing a patient who has a history of anxiety as well as a single ventricle anatomy, had a Fontan. And I might be seeing her for evaluation during her first trimester of her pregnancy, and she has history of a miscarriage at 18 weeks. And for reference, patients who have had a Fontan have an increased risk of miscarriage. And you can imagine how what would normally be an exciting time for most patients can be colored with stress and anxiety for this patient. And that's an extreme example, but it highlights how treating mental health along with cardiovascular conditions is still very important. That's something that we don't necessarily think about all the time. We think about how their cardiac disease affects the patient directly, but maybe not so much how as they grow and they deal with adult problems, they have effects down the road that are a result of their cardiac disease. And, and dealing with that is really kind of the heart of what we do. Dr. Kovacs, I'll ask you the same question. Sure. So I was starting a postdoctoral fellowship in cardiac psychology at the University of Florida in 2003. And during my first week, and I was planning to work actually more with the arrhythmia population. My first week of fellowship, I met Dr. Arwa Saidi, who's a pediatric and adult congenital cardiologist there. And we met and, and I think it was meant to be a half hour meeting. I think we chatted for about two hours and she was telling me about how interesting this patient population is. And and she said, you know, I think we ought to collaborate on some research and clinical care. She was very engaging in her description of this patient population. And so, so I started working with adults with congenital heart disease during the fellowship. And I found that as a group, they were interesting, engaged, inspiring, incredibly appreciative to, to be able to speak with uh, a psychologist about what they've been going through. I think they appreciated that people understood that living with a heart condition doesn't only affect a person's heart, it affects them in a lot of different ways. So clinically, it was incredibly rewarding. And then as a researcher also, I was kind of surprised at that time to find out that there hadn't been a lot of research conducted up to that point looking at the psychological impact of living with a chronic congenital heart condition. And so as a researcher or scientist, it was pretty cool to have the opportunity to think about research questions that I had and then be able to answer those. So it was kind of an emerging field from a psychological perspective, a little different than what we were learning or what we knew at that time about living with acquired heart disease. I think that for me, the patient population was really appealing and intriguing and inspiring. And I also would say that adult congenital heart disease cardiologists are really fun, respectful, really engaging, committed people too. They're really a unique breed. So I like the patient and the professional population. Wow, that's fantastic. So let's kick things off. When I hear the term mental health, I usually associate it with diagnoses such as anxiety and depression. Is it reasonable to think that patients with congenital heart disease face similar mental health challenges as those of the general population? And I know, Josh, you had some clarifying questions about this. 
Yeah, no, and I, I also, at this point, just kind of while we're talking in broad terms, like what are the terms that we should be using when we're discussing this specific population and, and what are the diagnoses that we should consider when we're thinking about what's affecting this particular patient population? Yep, great question. I think that adults with congenital heart disease face the same challenges that people who don't have a heart condition face. And so they just face additional challenges as well. We can use terms certainly like depression and anxiety. Those, I would say, are the most common psychological diagnoses in this patient population. We know that approximately a quarter to a third of adult congenital heart disease patients will be struggling with clinically significant depression or anxiety at any one point, and up to half will meet lifetime diagnostic criteria. There is a difference between talking about having a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder. When we use those terms, we're really talking about somebody who does meet diagnostic criteria. And I think that's an important distinction because oftentimes in research papers, we will use self-report symptoms, so a, um, a symptom assessment. And in doing so, that will let us know if somebody has elevated symptoms of depression or anxiety, but won't necessarily let us know whether they meet diagnostic criteria. And I say that because for the purposes of today, I think we can say depression or anxiety, knowing that it might mean formal diagnostic criteria, or it might mean the reporting elevated symptoms. And as a psychologist, I know that, you know, diagnosis matter only in as much as, you know, we're looking to see whether they fit into a category, but truthfully, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really impact how I treat them, whether or not somebody is meeting strict diagnostic criteria. But I think we primarily see a lot of anxiety and depression. And I would say clinically, historically, the focus has been on depression and people with heart conditions. I see more people with anxiety. We've done some research, including a study at University of Pennsylvania, and we found that elevated symptoms of anxiety were way more common than elevated symptoms of depression. The most common reason that people get referred to me is because they do have anxiety. And the one thing I'll add just briefly about anxiety is there's a difference between generalized anxiety and heart-focused anxiety. So oftentimes I see somebody and they may not have generalized anxiety about a lot of different things in their life, or they may not have panic disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. But what they really have is anxiety directly associated with living with a heart condition. So it might be worry about a decline in health status or getting an ICD or defibrillator or preparing for the next surgery or having a shortened life expectancy. So I think, and, and when we use that term, it gives us an opportunity to normalize and destigmatize their experiences. And I often say when people share their story with me at the end, they take a pause and they say, what do you think? And I, the first thing I often say is, I'd be surprised if somebody had gone through your history and not had any kind of emotional reaction. So I, I think we often want to frame this in terms of an understandable psychological reaction to really challenging experiences. So I know this is something that we may talk about a little bit later, but I'm, I'm curious when you mentioned the distinction between generalized anxiety and heart-specific anxiety, how is it that you make that distinction? Because as we alluded to earlier, their cardiac disease plays such a big role in their health outside of surgeries and things like that. Is there a tool set that you use or is it just a set of criteria that you use to make that determination? Yeah, so we can look. So somebody who has generalized anxiety will state that they have 
excessive worry about a lot of different things that's difficult to control and accompanied by other symptoms like muscle tension, sleep disturbance. The distinction, by the way, and I will say that health anxiety or anxiety about health, it's not a formal psychiatric diagnosis, which I love because it means that the patient and I get to agree that's what it is and that's what we work to. And I will say that when I see a patient at the end of every visit, I share what I would use as the visit diagnosis and, and we discuss this. And, and I'll, I'll just say something kind of joking, but it's serious. People will come and share their story. And at the end, I'll say, it sounds like you're dealing with, you know, I, I'd recommend a diagnosis, a propose of anxiety about health. And sometimes the, yeah, that's why I'm here. And that's what I said at the very beginning. So I think that diagnosis often really fits with their experience. And they'll, they will describe that it's really about the content or theme of their anxiety. And you're right. Sometimes it may be associated with work or relationships, but it really has to do with health-related concerns. I'd imagine that that, you know, when you describe that moment when you propose a diagnosis, that can be very validating for the patient as well. Do you feel like that's in some ways a therapeutic step that, that they take is giving them that diagnosis? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still do things the way that I was trained when I was a, an intern and a postdoc at University of Florida. My mentor was Dr. Sam Sears, who was really well known in terms of working with people with ICDs and shocks. And the way that I actually do an assessment is the way I, I was trained. So I actually allot two hours for the first visit. We go over a thorough clinical interview. I have people complete symptom surveys. And then at the end, I give a summary. I share the diagnosis and I want to hear their feedback because actually at the very beginning, I explained it's collaborative. They have been them for decades. So they will know their experiences, history, thoughts, feeling much better than I ever will. And what I bring is some experience and tools that have worked with people in other situations and we really collaborate. So I like to see the selection of a diagnosis as a collaborative process. And that can often be very Again, destigmatizing. And I will say it helps tremendously that I'm really integrated or embedded within the cardiology team. And I think that's a first step of destigmatizing, which is the cardiologist isn't saying, Hey, go see a psychologist. The cardiologist is saying, Hey, we have somebody on our team because we get it can be difficult. So the last thing that we do though, it's my responsibility to leave them with a message of hope and to say, it's common. I understand that this is a difficult situation. In fact, many other people I've worked with have shared similar concerns. So I'm really confident that you and I can work together and we can help. We can help you learn coping skills to manage this psychological distress and to have a better quality of life. So super important that at the end of that assessment, that they leave with the message that messages that somebody understands what they've been going through and also that somebody can help them. And I say that because they often come back for the next visit and you can see that just that assessment and feedback can sometimes make a significant difference. Dr. Lastinger, this heart-specific anxiety construct is something just so far in this conversation, I've been thinking about... Um, general heart disease and how patients in that population must have felt especially vulnerable to COVID over this last year and that this, this type of heart-specific anxiety, how it might apply to a younger patient population is something that I was wondering if you've seen kind of in your day-to-day -day practice kind of come up maybe more and more while the pandemic has been going on. Well, I will start out by saying that heart-related anxiety is real and I feel that and 
almost every one of my clinic visits, whether or not a patient gets referred to psychology to actually talk about it. But that is real. And when I meet new patients, especially transition patients, I do spend a fair bit of time discussing what they can expect out of visits for me in the future. Many of our patients we know are going to need at least one, if not multiple, surgical or transcatheter procedures just in their adulthood. And some are going to need a heart transplant. That's just going to be in their future. And a lot of them have had this discussion with their pediatric cardiologists. But when they get to me for transition and adulthood, they may not have had that. Some of them have been lost to follow up for decades. And so they show up to an appointment not knowing what to expect. And even those who have been coming for follow-up have told me, I don't hear anything you say until you tell me what my echo results are. And so even if they've come regularly, like the level of anxiety that they feel and what are they going to tell me when I come to this visit is real. And I, I don't discount that. And so I've actually started leading when I go in the room with your echo looks good or your test results are good. And I think that helps bring them down to at least a more comfortable level so that we can have a meaningful clinic visit. I also spend a fair bit of time reassuring them that if they come to their visits, if they get the recommended testing, there's almost never going to be a surprise or a shock to them that they're going to need something emergently or urgently done. And that actually tell them like, let me take that stress, but let me take that stress and put it on my shoulders. And I will, I will let you know when you need to stress about it, because that's not something anybody should ever have to live with is this daily stress of wondering what's next, what's going to happen with their heart. And so those are, I think, really important things that we can do to help our patients, even if they're not getting formally evaluated from a psychological standpoint. And then to your point about the COVID-related anxiety, that's been huge. I mean, even patients with simple congenital heart disease, we've received a lot of questions about that in clinic visits and phone calls. And I think a lot of that deals with the unknown, right? Like in the beginning, we didn't even have any answers to give them. I couldn't tell them I knew that their particular congenital heart disease was associated with a better or worse outcome. We have had, fortunately, some observational data, some retrospective studies around the world actually looking at that and have identified some risk factors. And so I now have a few things I can tell them. But in the beginning, it was just kind of probably you have a higher risk. And I mean, I had a lot of anxiety about it. We all had a lot of anxiety about it. And so you can imagine how reading the news and hearing that cardiovascular conditions are associated with a higher risk of dying can really impact our patients. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I mean, I was just like you. I was very anxious and very quickly I did think about this patient population and how they might feel that they were particularly vulnerable and it, it could drive a lot of anxiety, especially because many of them require specialty care, far away from home, their travel concerns, et cetera, et cetera. I think that another unique source of stress was actually adhering with the public health recommendations. And many patients I worked with, they were very adherent and they were worried about others. But just in terms of the anxiety, what's interesting is there were many patients who I spoke with and they actually did okay with this. And I think one thing about our patients is many of them have an, a history of coping with health uncertainty. So they may have heard, you know, we think you might be at risk of heart rhythm problems, arrhythmias sometime in the future, but we don't know when. We think we might need to change that valve, but we're going to keep an eye on it. We don't know when. We might consider you for heart transplant, but we don't know when. And I say that because that's something that maybe clinically I was able to integrate in my therapy, which is helping them understand that they have, many of them have a lot of experience with health uncertainty. And that's kind of what COVID entailed a little bit. And I think that's something different, let's say, than working with people with acquired heart disease or any health condition that arises later in life. Sometimes what can be really powerful clinically working with patients 
is reminding them that they have coped with pretty unique health challenges throughout their lives. And that, that seemed to be a bit of a powerful message for many of them. Thank you. That's definitely sort of an important thing that I, I think would give some reassurance to patients. It's like, look what you've been through, look what you've gone through and their strengths in what you've gone through so far and you can build on it. So Dr. Kovacs, in 2009, you published about the predictors and prevalence of depression and anxiety in the ACHD population. Could you summarize some of the findings of that study? And do you believe there's been any changes in the 12 years since? Oh my gosh, I feel like aging myself as I think about a study that was published in 2019. So thanks a lot for bringing that up. You said this was going to be a friendly conversation here. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, We started data collection when I was at University of Florida, and we continued when I was in Toronto, Canada. And we had a total of 280 patients who completed a battery of surveys, and we had 50 or 60 who did clinical interviews. And during the clinical interviews, we found that, again, about a third met diagnostic criteria for a mood or anxiety disorder. And then when we looked at the symptom measures, we wanted to see what factors were associated with elevated symptoms of depression or anxiety. And I think this is important because when I started working within an ACHD team, oftentimes the cardiologist, the attending or the fellow would say, hey, you know, I really want you to meet this patient in your exam room three because they have really complex heart condition. And I think there was the assumption initially that patients with more complex or severe forms of, of congenital heart disease would be struggling more. And we did this study and we found that actually defect severity, so mild, moderate, great complexity, was actually not significantly associated with symptoms of depression or anxiety. Neither in this study was like physician classified NYHA class. What really impacted it was patient reported physical health status. So what seems to be most relevant is how patients will define or describe their cardiac status. And then the other thing we found, variables we found were associated with these concepts essentially of loneliness and social anxiety. So we found that there's a, there was a real link between social well-being and psychological well-being. And that's actually why we often use the term psychosocial status or psychosocial functioning because they run hand in hand. So it's difficult to separate them out. And since then, even there have been other studies that have really highlighted the fact that it's less about, you know, original diagnosis and it's more about health status and how they're doing at that time and how they perceive their health. And I say that because congenital heart disease is a little bit different than cancer, for example. And when somebody gets a cancer diagnosis, when we hear about it, we want to know the stage right away because that means something to the general population. With congenital heart disease, we don't really stage it with families and patients as much. You know, I might sometimes in clinics see somebody who has a relatively simple diagnosis and they will feel that what they're living with is a really, really significant congenital heart lesion or they may be very symptomatic where somebody um, might have Fontane physiology. They might be saying, yeah, I feel just great. So in order to understand or think about what might be associated with psychological well-being from a purely, I would say, a cardiac point of view, we really want to know what symptoms they're having and how they interpret those symptoms. I always say that I don't think that our findings have been disproved in the past dozen years. How about that? Thank you so much. No, yeah. I remember reading it when I was writing a, a review in med school and I just, it was a foundational paper in my mind. That's all I meant to say by 2009. 
as you said, as long as you said you were reading it in medical school and not when you were in, in junior high or something. <laughs> it, it really is interesting when you consider that some of the big issues, the psychosocial issues, loneliness and social functioning are they pervade the, the spectrum of congenital heart disease, simple congenital heart disease, complex congenital heart disease. So it's really something that affects a lot of our patients. And it's to me, as someone entering the field of congenital cardiology, I feel like, you know, one of the challenges that I've faced is knowing who to risk stratify and how we risk stratify them. And so when I was looking up some of this information, I came across some tools that people have used. And there have been some associations with things like looking at apolipoprotein E and neurodevelopmental outcomes and diagnosis of ADHD, specifically in patients who have had early heart surgery and been on pump. And I'm wondering maybe for Dr. Lassinger, are there tools that you use? Is there something that we should be doing to risk stratify our patients in terms of who is really at risk for developing issues like this? I think the apolipoprotein E research is interesting and it points out an important concept in our patients who have undergone surgery to correct their congenital heart disease, particularly surgeries, as you mentioned, involving cardiopulmonary bypass. We know there's extensive research that shows that patients of any age using cardiopulmonary bypass have a higher incidence of neurologic insults, including stroke, but more commonly cognitive dysfunction postoperatively. And the apolipoprotein E variant has been associated with more vulnerability for this. But I wouldn't say that that, I mean, I think that's some interesting research. And I think it points out something we already know that our patients with adult congenital heart disease are going to be vulnerable to this anytime they undergo surgery. But the bottom line is, all of our patients are at risk for this, right? All of our patients looking at Dr. Kovac's study are at risk for mental health concerns, mood disorders. And so I'm in favor of screening everybody that comes into my clinic. We do screen everybody that comes into our clinic, especially things like depression and anxiety, but even other things like substance abuse disorder, which becomes a much more prevalent mental health concern in the adult population. And so we don't have biological markers. We don't have genetic alleles that we look at regularly. And I don't know if that's really practical, but I would say that all of our patients are at risk and so screening for it is very important. Can I add a recommendation for Jim, if that's okay? So what I would do if, if, I, were, if I were you is I would plan and practice a couple kind of key sentences that you repeat with patients. So it just becomes in your dialogue. So some things like, does thinking about your health make you worried or depressed? So Something like that. How are you doing from a psychological perspective? So there's ways just to engage them that I think is important. And then something I would say is just a question like or a statement. I know that patients um, sometimes struggle with low mood or anxiety. If that ever happens to you, you just let me know and we can discuss it. And that way you're opening up that line of discussion. So there may not be time to have a full discussion at every visit. But what you can do is demonstrate that you're aware of that they may be dealing with psychological issues. You are normalizing it and destigmatizing it by saying, we know that many of our patients will struggle with low mood anxiety. You know, if you ever went into that problem, you just let me know and we can chat about it. So you let them know that you're open to that discussion. And I think we want to make it easier for patients to disclose to us when they are struggling a little bit. So that normalizing, destigmatizing, creating a psychologically safe environment, if you will, can really go a long way. Thank you. Oh, yeah. And I know that sometimes this isn't sort of the uh, the first thing that providers think about engaging 
on when they first enter a visit, but definitely something that it sounds like should be done on a regular basis. Dr. Kovacs, are there any sort of medical risk factors in your mind that stick out in terms of ideas that are in a patient's past medical history that might predispose them to have mood disorders or attention disorders or neurodevelopmental issues? Well, I think we know a lot more about predictors of neurodevelopmental and neurocognitive outcomes. So things like presence of a genetic syndrome, for example, especially somebody with 22Q11 deletion syndrome, which is common in patients with tetralogy of Fallot and similar disorders. They're actually at more risk of some of the more severe forms of uh, psychiatric disorders. Uh, we know that prematurity, longer hospital stays is a predictor, but we can we look at these medical factors and it turns out that one of the strongest predictors of neurodevelopmental outcomes in children, adolescents with congenital heart disease is actually family socioeconomic status because we know that families who have the financial means and the educational background to access earlier intervention, their kids seem to do better. So we look at medical factors, social factors, access, all of these things contribute to neurodevelopmental outcomes in the pediatric setting. And we we kind of call those neurocognitive outcomes in the adult setting. So I think we, we know more about what predicts neurocognitive outcomes. And yet, even in the adult setting, you can have the onset of arrhythmias or heart failure that may further impact neurocognitive outcomes, just like they do in the general population. If we want to think about previous factors that in somebody's history that may impact psychological well-being, we can maybe look at, think a little bit about number of surgeries, how often they were separated from their peers growing up. That seems to be a big predictor. So if we think about psychosocial well-being for kids who had many surgeries, extended hospitalizations, maybe they didn't get to go to school for a while. Those things, I think, might impact well-being down the road. You know, sometimes by chatting to people, we get a sense of qualitatively what those pediatric health experiences were like. And so sometimes they'll say, gosh, I love my pediatric cardiologist. When I was in the hospital, everybody was so great. I love the nurses. And then other people will say, I remember being wheeled down to this surgery and nobody telling me what was going on. And I remember it being really painful and nobody would answer my questions. So I think sometimes getting an understanding of what their pediatric experiences were like rather than just what they were. And so again, it goes beyond looking at a line in a medical record, whether it's the diagnosis of surgical history and really finding out what those experiences were like, how they shaped them rather than just what was done to them. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Kovacs. And this has just been an absolutely fantastic discussion so far. And I really appreciated that advice that you gave Jim earlier about incorporating certain phrases and, and sentences into your daily practice as a screener, but also as a message for your patient that you're a lifeline for them for all their needs, cardiovascular, but also mental health. It really goes hand in hand. And I think that's really special and something that I can for sure incorporate, not as an ACHD doc, but just somebody taking care of patients uh, and getting them through very tough challenges in life. So there's a lot of things that our patients experience that increase their risk of neurodevelopmental disorders and mood and behavioral health problems throughout their lives. I'll throw this to you, Dr. Lastinger. How might this manifest and what are some of the challenges that we encounter during childhood? I'm going to focus not a childhood pediatric cardiologist. And so I, I can definitely tell you how they're going to manifest in adult. And so mood and behavioral health problems may manifest by impaired peer relationships, impaired romantic relationships, 
poor school or work performance, difficulty getting or keeping a job may manifest as inconsistent medical follow-up, medication non-compliance, substance abuse, which in itself is a mental health disorder, but is tightly associated with other psychiatric diagnoses like depression, anxiety, PTSD, OCD, um, and often is a chicken or egg uh, situation. These are all very common ways that I see uh, motor behavioral health problems manifest in adulthood. Thank you so much for that. And Dr. Kovacs, do you have anything to add? No, I, I think that Dr. Lastinger outlined those really well. And really, you know, there's often a bi-directional relationship. If you're depressed, it's actually really hard to get motivated to look for a job. If you have a job and then you're depressed, it, it can be difficult to keep that job. So these things go back and forth and we, it's easy to, it's easy to forget how there is that two-way relationship, that bi-directional relationship between mental health and so many aspects. So education, socializing, family life, career, things like that. And so I think from what I'm hearing, just first, this is all just kind of so interesting how we can kind of relate sort of a person's experience with their condition and how it affects some of the things that can give them a lot of meaning in their lives, kind of about how they go to work or seek out a job or live their day-to-day -day lives that, you know, after we, you know, they leave our doctor's office and we treat them. Um, what do we know about sort of quality of life in this population and sort of what impacts that sort of, um, what are like the major forces that would be involved in impacting quality of life? I think it's great that you asked about quality of life. And by the way, this is a term that actually is meaningful to patients. So sometimes even in a clinic visit, you can ask questions about quality of life. I was part of the steering committee for Approach IS, which was an international study looking at patient reported outcomes in adult congenital heart disease. And we enrolled over 4,000 patients from 15 countries. And so we looked at quality of life. And one of the measures that we use to look at quality of life is a zero to 100 scale, where zero is the worst possible quality of life and 100 is the best possible quality of life. And so my question to the three cardio nerd fellows on this podcast is, what do you think the median quality of life score from zero to 100 was in this sample of over 4,000 adults with congenital heart disease around the world? Who'd like to go first? I'll go. I, I would like to say, I'd like to hope over 75. So 75. 75. Okay. I was going to say 75, but I was getting ready to be surprised. Okay. So you got to take a number. Uh, I'll say 70. I'll say 70. Okay. Price, you can't price a rise. Oh, yeah. I, go with I was, I was about to do the same thing. I was going to, I was going to price is right you, but I think, I think it's probably somewhere in that ballpark. I think based on what I've read and maybe this is something that we can talk about. I think the actual quality of life is higher than we might anticipate. So I'm going to guess 70. Okay. Okay. Good job. Dr. Lastlinger, do you feel like a guess? I'm going to go 87. Okay. Okay. Well, you're all in the ballpark. It was 80, which I think actually is pretty impressive and really surprised a lot of people. And I think that, you know, we, we, we try and wonder why it is perhaps higher than anticipated. And there are some possible factors, but the idea is that they have lived with this for their entire life. So although we might see them in clinic and we might think, gosh, it might be difficult to have these experiences, some of them cope pretty well. And there are some studies that have actually shown that quality of life is equal or better to reports of it. So I think it's interesting and informative to assess quality of life. And yet I would say 
as a psychologist that it doesn't give us the entire picture. So we know that psychological, psychosocial well-being and quality of life are related. If we only assess quality of life, though, we wouldn't be getting some of the true psychological distress. So I administer these surveys to patients in my clinic, and sometimes they may say, yeah, my quality of life is an 80, but I'm still dealing with significant depression or anxiety. So we, we want to look at this. And you asked about, I think, factors maybe associated with quality of life. And from this sample of 4,000 patients, what we found was that older age, lack of employment, never having been married, and worse, NYHA functional class were associated with lower quality of life. So those are the things, at least from this large database, that were quite consistent across that. Again, and older patients tend to be more symptomatic. You know, not having a job can be quite demoralizing, never having been married. Again, in that worst NYHA functional class, but by the way, there's a one-item survey looking at self-reported NYHA class, and that's what we did. We actually asked patients to define NYHA class. We didn't rely on their cardiologist to do that for them. I have another question for you guys. Is it okay if I ask another little quiz question? Ask as many as you want. Sure. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a list. I want you to let me know which country you think had the highest, the highest quality of life score. Canada, India, Italy, Netherlands, Australia, Switzerland, the U.S. I'm glad it's multiple choice. I would definitely have not gotten it without multiple choice. I would, I don't know. Part of me wants to guess Australia. I'll go ahead and guess the Netherlands. I'll take Switzerland. I'll, okay. Like I could see that a nice view. Yep. Yep. Okay. Okay. Nice job, Dr. Safe. It was Australia. So there. The average score there was 82, uh, 82.1 for Switzerland, 81.4, US 80.4, Netherlands 79.9. So they're all pretty close, but just for, uh, for having some fun today, Australia did come out slightly highest there. And it's interesting because before this, I might have guessed the Netherlands because for all of the research that we talk about adults with congenital heart disease having increased risk of clinically significant psychological distress, we found that in Canada, U.S., Germany, France, uh, Japan. The Netherlands is the oddball. The Netherlands is the odd person out here. And that the Netherlands, they have some research, longitudinal research, showing that actually their patients do very well from a psychological perspective. So there's something unique about patients in the Netherlands. It may be a small country, really easy to access care, plenty of centers. It may be that Dutch way of life. They ride their bicycles everywhere. Who knows? But the research coming out of the Netherlands is much more suggestive of an improved psychological well-being in patients than from anywhere else. So many interesting points in there. What I, one of the things that I want to get back to, one of, the, one of the things that you had brought up when you were talking about how we're having patients assess their own mental well-being and we're, we're relying on their interpretation and their account of things to provide a score and using their accounts and things like what is their perception of their MYHA class? What is really interesting to me and what I'm curious about is how might we go about assessing somebody, one of our patients who may be nonverbal? Because we know there are many conditions that a patient may be nonverbal or may not communicate using a method that you or I do typically. And how do we bridge that gap for those patients? Dr. Lastinger, I'll put that to you first. 
That's a great question. And to be perfectly honest, from a cardiologist standpoint, I don't have a great answer for you. I I, I do the cardiology part and I screen for some of the mental health part. But I I think when oftentimes really parents bring that concern to me. So an inpatient that's nonverbal, they tend to be very closely connected to a caregiver, whether that's a parent, a grandparent or another caregiver that works closely with them. And so those concerns typically come to me from the caregiver saying this patient is not eating as well, or they they are not behaving in a way that are typical for them. They may be having more angry outbursts. They may be less verbal. They may if they're they may not be able to communicate with you with words, but they may be less communicative in the way that they have. And so when I hear that from a parent and those concerns from a parent, then that is an automatic referral from my standpoint to a, a provider who specialized in mental health concerns in this patient population, which fortunately at a large center, especially mine, which is connected also closely with the children's hospital, we do have those referrals available for neuropsychological or neurocognitive assessment in these patients that may not be able to tell me verbally what's going on with them. I think also we look at some of the diagnostic criteria. So I I realized that it would be very difficult to give somebody a symptom inventory, for example. But the diagnostic criteria, let's say for a major depressive episode, you know, we look for somebody who for most days, most of the day for at least a couple of weeks have had either low mood or anhedonia, which is loss of interest or pleasure in usual activities that can be observable. You know, Dr. Lessinger, you mentioned um, eating and things. So like changes in eating habits, weight. Um, so eating a lot more, a lot less. Changes in sleeping patterns, um, a sense of fatigue, less poor concentration, kind of the normal. So there are some things that are quite observable that I think a parent or caregiver would be able to give information about. And I often hear that they'll come and say, my son daughter, they used to love it when we would go for a walk or take the dog out or go to our weekly bowling and they don't want to do it anymore. It often is that lots of interest or pleasure in things. I think that's one thing we can look at. And then the other thing is sleep because sleep can be really impacted when people are depressed or or anxious. So that's another kind of good cue to think about. This is just absolutely essential for these patients. And I think this brings up a really important point. I happen to be a proud dad of a gem of a daughter who has a neurodevelopmental rare genetic disorder called SCL1A4 deficiency, which just thank goodness does not have any adult congenital heart disease or congenital heart disease, but she's nonverbal. And I really can relate to the important need for insights into the mental health status of these amazing patients. So for the cardiologist who's following congenital patients, either in the pediatric or adult practice, who need specialized screening for neurodevelopmental disorders, at what time should screening begin for these patients? Yeah, I was going to say screening should begin early. We, we have a lot more data on diagnosing neurocognitive neurodevelopmental issues in childhood and not so much in adulthood. And so we know most of these patients with congenital heart disease do present in childhood. And so the screening really should begin there. And I know that you mentioned specifically genetic disorders, and that's an important part of it too, picking up and diagnosing genetic disorders and that sort of thing. Because the earlier you can, you can make these diagnoses, have them formally tested, having the formal diagnosis of a neurocognitive disorder made, the earlier you can actually connect patients to certain resources that can help them. And I think that's probably very state dependent, but I can tell you specifically in the state of Ohio, if you make a diagnosis of, say, either a genetic disorder that has associated developmental disorders with it before age 22, then they can get set up with the Board of Developmental Disabilities, which then can connect patients to things like 
physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, music therapy. They can get help with transportation. They can help get them enrolled in Special Olympics. They can get them set up with a home health aid, waivers for day programs, residential care, that sort of thing. And so screening really should be early because for honestly the benefit of the patient, but then really logistically, the ability to connect patients and families with resources that can be vitally helpful to them as they get older. I'll add that uh, screening for neurodevelopmental disorders in the pediatric setting is way, it's actually further ahead of psychosocial outcomes in the adult setting. There's something called the Cardiac Neurodevelopmental Outcome Collaborative or CNOC. And I would say most, most larger pediatric centers, there are dozens of members who are part of this and they've come out with recommended screenings in terms of the, the, the times, the ages, and exactly, and even what measures ought to be administered at, the, at those times. So they've come up with some algorithms for this. Dr. Lastinger and I both work in the adult setting, but I, I would say that the pediatric setting have nice recommended pathways and algorithms for this. And many of them will embed neurodevelopment efforts within the pediatric cardiology teams to make sure that they can assess this in a comprehensive and holistic way. I would hope that when somebody comes to see us in the adult setting, that they will have had full assessments. And the one thing I'll add is it's actually really important that that information be communicated to those of us working in the adult setting. It's not enough to see that somebody has a neurodevelopmental disorder listed on the diagnosis because that doesn't tell us whether they are verbal or nonverbal. It doesn't let us know what they have difficulties doing and what they are able to do, what they like to do. When patients are transferred from pediatric to adult care, really important that all of this information about neurodevelopmental assess assessment is shared with the adult providers. And I think also important to note that if it hasn't been done, and certainly we see this all the time, patients fall through the cracks and they've never had any formal testing as is recommended in the pediatric population. But you know, to really answer your question, screening should begin as early as possible, but shouldn't be limited to that period. So if we do see an adult and there are neurodevelopmental and neuropsychological concerns, we should definitely be referring these patients for evaluation. It's so interesting to me, I think, to hear coming from the adult perspective that there's such a discrepancy between how we screen in, in the pediatric setting versus how we screen in the adult setting. And I mean, the takeaway for me, I think, is that the earlier we do this and the more frequently we do this, the better our, our patients will do. Um, so Transitioning here a, a little bit in, in our topic, it's really not surprising to me then to discover that there's been a strong association between congenital heart disease and a reduction in executive function and insight into one's disease process. And as, as we do transition our patients from that pediatric setting to the adult congenital service, I know on our end, we spend a lot of time and effort educating patients and trying to empower them to succeed independently. But I'm wondering, I think one of the most important things I might ask you today is what are some of the strategies that, that you can do and that you are doing to employ or to ensure treatment success for our patients who have cognitive and self-regulatory vulnerability? I think, as you mentioned, education is key. If parents or if patients and caregivers understand what the congenital heart disease concerns are, what the expected follow-up needs are. And why this is important, it helps everyone engage in the care of the patient. For my patients who I think have high enough neurocognitive function to engage in their own care, and it doesn't have to be 
high cognitive functioning doesn't mean that they have an eighth grade education or that sort of thing. But I make a point to help them name their diagnosis and help them name their repairs and to make sure that they know the things that are unique to them. And that could be as simple as knowing their baseline oxygen saturation. So if they end up in an ER one day with a cough and a fever, that can help the provider taking care of them. So like little things, you don't have to have high executive functioning to know you, to know that you have a scar on your chest, to know that you have a pacemaker, to know that you have unique things about your heart. And so I think that's important for all of our patients that have the ability to engage on even on a simple level and engaging them in their own care. And then I think another important strategy is engaging all the stakeholders in the medical home. So that could be home health aid, that could be primary care physicians, that's anybody that's taking care of this patient to help reinforce some of the messages we we are giving them and the importance of their cardiovascular care and ongoing follow-up. I think it's great that you're asking me about transition because that's something that's different from acquired heart disease. We know that ideally, so transfer is the kind of the act of moving from a pediatric setting to an adult setting. Some places there's a flexible age of transfer. Some places it's mandated. So I'm Canadian and in most of Canada, it's mandated at the age of 18. Transition, however, is a longer process that ideally begins by early adolescence, but can begin in childhood and continues following transfer to adult care. So it might be a 12-year process. And I think the goals of transition, there are two main goals. One is that we want people to stay in uninterrupted healthcare throughout their lives. So oftentimes there are gaps or lapses in care. Sometimes the term loss to follow-up is used. That's not my preferred term, but it can be gaps in care. And we know that lapses or gaps in congenital heart disease care are associated with poor outcomes. So the first thing we want is to have a process that really reinforces the importance of long-term specialized care. The other bit is that we want people to develop the knowledge and skills to be maximally responsible for their healthcare management. And some people will be able to be fully responsible, some people minimally responsible, and some people somewhere in the middle. So I think that working with them, we certainly want to adapt our education, the way that we teach patients. We want to adapt it to the neurodevelopmental abilities. Repeating things can go really well, providing information in verbal and written formats, sending them to websites, recommended websites where there's good information. We developed a website called iheartchange.org and there's information there specifically for people transitioning. Asking them questions, I would say Something that I recommend regularly is beginning in early middle adolescence is that the, the pediatric provider, and that can be whether it's the cardiologist or nurse or NP or PA, takes time to speak with each patient on their own for part of every visit. And that's a really easy way to give patients practice speaking to their doctors on their own because it's so easy for mom or dad who might be in the room to be answering questions for them. So giving them time on their own allows them to gain that comfort and confidence speaking with a health professional. So I think there are a lot of different strategies. And I I will say, though, that one of the challenges is that historically, when we've done conducted research into understanding transition and transition readiness and transition interventions, Unfortunately, people with developmental disabilities have often been excluded from that research. So I would say that 
the next phase forward will be focusing a lot more on, on that unique subset, that cohort. Thank you very much for Dr. Dr. Kovacs. And I'll just jump in here with the question that we hadn't necessarily planned for this part, but we already have the recognition and insight to appreciate how much advocacy these patients require and how beneficial it is to have a support structure and family, a familiar structure. And, and you know, especially when these children are diagnosed so early when they're really not able to take care of themselves or, or interact with the medical healthcare you know, system by themselves and really need that support. And now they're transitioning from the pediatric side to the adult side. How do you help parents with that transition? I can imagine that this could be a very challenging thing to do as well. What, what words of advice do you give them? I, I spend a fair amount of time acknowledging the journey they've been through and acknowledging their role in their child care to date. I talk a lot about breakups in clinics. And when I have a patient that is transitioning to my care from their pediatric cardiologist, often the parent has the hardest time with that transition. And so I acknowledge that this is a tough breakup. You've been with this cardiologist since your child was a baby, since your child was first diagnosed with this. And that's a very profound, powerful connection. And it's hard for parents. It's hard for parents to make that transition. And the, the kid, most of their memory, they're like, yeah, I saw this cardiologist, but they weren't there when their parents were feeling that, that fear and that worry about their child needing surgery. And as a parent now, I can, I understand that. I get that. And so I spend a fair amount of time acknowledging where they're coming from and, and reassuring them that my goal is the same as their pediatric cardiologist. And when I have the opportunity, I, I have that direct conversation with a pediatric cardiologist and I I reinforce to the parents that I am always, I can always communicate with with that person if that's an option. And so I I love it when my, I love it when my patients come by themselves without their parents, but often for that transition visit, it's nice to have them there because that really helps bridge that gap between the patient being dependent on one person and helps them move along with their parents together into a more independent medical clinical situation. And this concept to me of it's not just the the patient that we're treating now through the transition process, but also the parent is really, uh, really interesting. And, and, you know, something that I think is easy for the general cardiologist who may be seeing these patients to overlook. I'm curious outside of the transition setting, what is the impact on parents and families and what should we be doing to support these folks who are dealing with the everyday challenges uh, that come along with having a child with congenital heart disease? So I'm going to, my bias, by the way, is that we can and should be doing way more than we have. I think we have, if we look at that study was published in 2009, we actually have commentaries going back 40, 50 years talking about the psychological impact in childhood and, and adulthood. And we are, th- this for me is, I would say, one of the next frontiers of improving congenital heart disease care is actually attending to the psychosocial needs of patients and families. So right now we are absolutely not doing enough. Again, there's some more research from the pediatric setting in terms of the impact on family members. We know that this can be incredibly stressful for parents even, and this starts oftentimes before a diagnosis. More diagnosis is what coming in the fetal period. Sometimes we are removing some of the joy of expecting a child, knowing that as soon as they are born, a few days later, they may be whisked away to the OR. So stress can begin even before, before the birth of the child. So there have been a few studies looking at how we can intervene better. I, I really... I haven't given up hope that one day we will have a more comprehensive approach to meeting the psychological needs, neurodevelopmental and psychological needs um, 
of patients as well as the needs of family members, certainly parents. And I, and I think siblings oftentimes are affected also because oftentimes a lot of attention and resources appropriately go to the person who's dealing with a significant health situation. So how do we make sure that we are supporting the healthier sibling? How do we make sure that we are not creating unnecessary anxiety in the siblings? So I would say that there is so much more that we can do and we ought to do, and it will just require leadership prioritizing this. I absolutely agree with that. I think there much more research on this topic is needed and many more resources need to be need to be employed into this area. I think a lot of that is going to have to do with advocacy because when you're dealing with mental health concerns, that's not something that necessarily is easily covered by insurances. And so we run into that all the time with our we're just not just our patients, but family members as well. And so a, a group that often gets left out because they're not there when these patients are kids or spouses and, you know, significant others as my patients have those. They're, they may not be connected to their parents anymore, but they are to their spouses and significant others. And the stress that comes with a patient that they may have kids and be married and then their their major support, their spouse has to have an open heart surgery or is looking at a heart transplant. And the, the stress of the family all around is needs to be addressed and needs to be taken into consideration. But then on top of that, as Dr. Kovac said, it's we need to do more and I feel like I'm talking in circles a little bit here with a lot of different topics, but advocacy is another big thing that we need to be involved in to help get some of these services that our patients and their family members need covered by insurance. I'm in total agreement. Um, obviously, you know, given that, you know, we've spent sort of the last hour, you know, talking about how important the topic is and how much there is to learn and how much, how much we've learned already. And I'll say that just moving from the series, I know that sort of mental health within ACHD has been, uh, been sort of a, uh, consideration that's uh, been increasingly recognized in the broader provider community that take care of these patients. Since we know that there's a benefit to getting patients adequately screened and, uh, referred to a program and receiving care for their mental health. What do you think are reasonable steps or constructs that maybe programs could use that haven't developed an infrastructure for mental health for ACHD patients? What could they do to build up their programs? Any thoughts on that? Dr. Lastinger first and then Dr. Kovacs. I think one of the more important things that is not always easy to do, I think having a Dr. Kovacs as a part of your program is huge, right? Like having somebody who understands the unique mental health issues that these patients go through that you can easily connect your patients with. And not every program is going to have that. But that's a huge thing is identifying someone who has an interest in this because if the provider has an interest, then they're more likely to engage in these patients. So finding a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist that has an interest in taking care of patients with congenital heart disease would be a great first step. Yeah, I, I think you've asked like the million dollar question. I think that for some programs, so I Again, I strongly believe that mental health professionals ought to be embedded within ACHD teams, within cardiology teams. It improves access for patients. It reduces stigma. It makes it easier for the health professionals, the cardiologists and nurses to actually ask about this, knowing they have somebody to refer to. It provides a nice opportunity for like casual consultation. So I'm often asked about patients who actually have not been referred to me and I can provide some insight there. I think that in the U.S., as there are, we have program accreditation. I hope that actually, I, I think that for some programs, 
They may not uh, consider this unless it was mandated. But so if a criterion for program accreditation was that there was a embedded mental health, I think that would change things. I am hopeful that I, I honestly, I don't want to lay this on the shoulder of fellows, but I think that this next generation, as they move into staff positions and as they move into leading leadership positions, will be better able to advocate for this because I think that there's an increased awareness of mental health in general, whether it's patients or doctors and nurses. When institutions are offered philanthropic support, they get to decide how they use that money. So you can buy, you, there's, you know, they talk about innovative, you wanting to purchase or make innovative differences. I would actually say that hiring a person to actually tend to the psychological needs of patients is as innovative, more innovative as getting a fancy imaging machine. And I have friends who are imagers and uh, they might debate me on this, but I think it needs to be prioritized at the highest level. Patient organizations are advocating for this, but I think until it's identified as a clear priority. So I think we have, in the past decade, we've moved toward increased awareness. So oftentimes a psychologist, psychiatrist will be invited to speak at presentations. I think hopefully in the next decade, we'll have more access and integration of mental health. And it won't just be, we ought to be doing this. It'll, we will have transitioned to, and we are doing this. Those are really important points. And certainly as someone who is looking into the future of congenital heart disease and where I'm going in my next step, I think we all feel the onus of responsibility on addressing this issue in particular. My question for you now, I, I guess I'll ask Dr. Kovacs first, is until we have these services available, until I can get out there and, and start working on these things and building a program of my own, and until I can get a patient plugged in into that kind of environment, what are the things that I can do today? What can the physicians do? What can the nurses do that can really make a meaningful impact on the psychological well-being of our patients? Yeah. So I think there are, and I, and I will say that just as I strongly advocate for embedded mental health professionals, I also recommend things that non-mental health professionals can do. There are some interventions, I think, that are very reasonable. First of all, recommending fit medically appropriate physical activity, because we know that exercise, it, it, any physical activity has not only physiologic benefits, but also mental health benefits. So it improves mood, anxiety, reduces stress, things like that. So encouraging appropriate physical activity and letting them know that to get the mental health benefits doesn't really matter what they do, how intense, how long. So encouraging physical activity. I would say if a patient says to you, I'm really worried or I'm really nervous or anxious about something, ask them specifically what it is that they're anxious about because oftentimes it's something that you can reass provide reassurance about. So get specific information. I would say that offering opportunities for peer interaction are good, like a patient education day. I actually wouldn't necessarily right off recommend patient support groups because those are actually poorly attended, but offering education days where people can get together, they can meet one another and they can learn about some of these things. Those can be very powerful. Another question is asking if patients are avoiding anything that they're afraid of doing because of their health that you haven't recommended. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I, you know, I avoid hiking because I think it's bad for me. And then you can re provide some reassurance about that. So I think there are uh, 
some things that, that, that cardiologists can do actually that can have an impact. The one last thing I'll add is providing positive reinforcement. So sometimes patients will come to clinic and you give them a medical update and, and we might talk about sometimes stress or things like that, but really commenting on their resilience, their effective coping. I realize things have been difficult, but gosh, I'm really impressed that you made it to clinic today. I knew it wasn't easy to do that. Or I know at the last visit, we talked about exercising five times a week, and maybe that was a bit ambitious, but you tell me you've started exercising a couple times a week. That's great. So giving them some positive reinforcement goes a long way. And they remember things that you tell them because they tell me. They will say, oh, I saw the cardiologist and you know what? They said it was really good that I've been doing this and I want to keep doing that. So I think that offering that positive reinforcement can be really powerful. Wow. I, I mean, I think I've, I've just learned so much from talking to you today. I think everything from strategies to destigmatize to strategies to empowering, like you've just brought up. I, I guess, Dr. Lastinger, what are your, your strategies? What are things that I can do today to help make sure that my patients succeed in this setting? So I think we're all clinically busy, right? So if you can break it down into some simple steps. Everybody appreciates simple steps. So one, recognizing first and foremost that our patients are at risk for mental health concerns and mental health issues. And so screening for those should become a routine part of our cardiology care. And it can be as simple as asking a screening question, having a screening piece of paperwork that patients fill out before they see you, asking things like, do you feel down, depressed, or anxious? Or do you have an interest in speaking to someone about mental health concerns? That's step number one, is recognizing step two is screening for that. And then step three is referring when ref- referring to a, a mental health provider when that's appropriate. And we have, like I said, we're busy, we're all busy, and you may have to talk about 15 things in a 15-minute visit, and you may not have time to go into depth about a patient's anxiety or concerns about depression, but reassuring to them that the patient, that that's important to you, and that's an important part of their health care, and then connecting them to somebody who can help them more in depth with that, even if it's someone in primary care. Those are the th- things I think any cardiologist can do in a clinic visit. One thing I'd like to add when we talk about advocacy is I think that it's some folks, it may be important to remind them that not only do we want to treat psychological distress because it's unpleasant and nobody likes being depressed or anxious. So it is it's a, something that we, that is, it is very unpleasant. Um, in addition to that, we know that among adults with congenital heart disease, that anxiety and depression have been associated with more primary care and hospital visits, more emergency room visits, more hospitalizations, more expensive high-resource use hospitalizations, and an increased mortality risk. So if I was part of the pediatric cardiology team or the pediatric surgical team, and if we did all of these amazing things along with parents to keep these kids alive and to help them reach adulthood and to have longer lives, I would want to do everything I can to reduce morbidity and mortality in the adult setting. And this is a way that we can do that. So again, it impacts not only subjective well-being, but can have some real impact on morbidity and mortality in the adult setting. On this topic that I think is important, we've been talking a lot about mental health of our patients, but I do think it's very important as providers who take care of these very complex patients, adult congenital heart disease patients, that we're in touch with our own mental health because 
It can be exhausting. It can be heart-wrenching. It can be depressing. It can be uplifting. And I struggle with all these emotions pretty much on a daily basis. And we do know that physicians in general are at higher risk for things like depression and suicide, cardiologists especially. And I don't think I I really felt that until I became an attending. And these patients were, I was making decisions that were literally life or death situations for my patients. And I feel that and I feel that every day. And I think we need to be very cognizant as the providers that are taking care of these patients into our own mental health and taking care of ourselves as well as we go through our careers. Dr. Lassinger, that's going to actually dovetail perfectly into what I'm about to ask you next. But before I do, I just want to acknowledge what an amazing discussion this was. And I am so grateful that I'm able to be here hiding out from this uh, barrage of cicadas that are just like plunking against my window. Probably a little jealous they want to hear this recording session, which I, I totally relate to. But and just really seeing the passion that you and Dr. Kovacs bring to such a, an important subject and such an important practice is really inspiring. And speaking about burnout and risks and challenges that that we as uh, healthcare providers have with dealing with patients so complex. We like in the cardiac vernacular, we like to focus on other things that let's say bring us joy and excitement about taking care of these patients. Hopefully that contributes to some well-being and we call that heart fluttering. So I will turn it up to Dr. Kovacs first. What makes your heart flutter about taking care of patients with adult congenital heart disease? Well, I will say if you asked people who know me well, that I would say that I have the best job in the world for me. Working with them, the clinical care, I would say that I find that adults with congenital heart disease are the most inspirational group of people anybody could have the pleasure of working with. I learn something with them every day. So I have full day clinics. And at the end of the day, I think that not only is the opportunity to contribute to their, hopefully, their psychological well-being and quality of life, that they have brought so much to my own psychological well-being. So when they have cool coping strategies, I listen to them. And I would just say it's been, for me, just a privilege to interact with this really genuine, honest, inspiring, compassionate, they want to give back. I would say that I, I really lucked out almost 20 years ago when I was first introduced to this group of patients. So I would say anytime I get to do clinic work or hang out with them, I, I just think I feel very rewarded. Dr. Lastinger, same question. I, I joke around a lot that I don't understand why everybody doesn't want to do this because I love what I do. I love going to work every day. And I'm just fascinated by my patients literally every single day. Every single one is different. Literally, their hearts, their bodies are different. And um, each one presents this unique anatomic and physiologic and psychologic puzzle that I get to put together every day. And nobody spends almost a decade of their life training to do something unless they truly love it. <laughs> and uh, I feel very lucky that I get to work with this patient population every day and that it's so personally fulfilling to me. Thank you. Thank you for that. And this is just a good time for me to acknowledge because uh, like I just said, this is just such an amazing recording session. The Adult Congenital Heart Seas series is really the brainchild whatever, <laughs> the brilliance of Josh Safe. And he, this is his idea. And just watching him really grow into this role of co-chair along with Dan and Agnes, bringing us all together for these amazing discussions is just absolutely wonderful. And I'm really excited for what he has um, in store next. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate that. But Jim, I want to spend a moment and make sure that uh, we focus on you. You're an ACHD fellow already. You're already on this path. Very interested in hearing about what your thoughts are on your future and what, what kind of what you see yourself doing within the great world that is ACHD. 
Oh, well, thanks. I mean, it's been uh, such a great path so far. I always loved it adult cardiology. But I think as we were talking before we started recording a little bit, the really the most interesting stuff is the congenital stuff. And I'm clearly biased. But beyond that, it, it, I'll just echo the fact that it's just so inspiring to to meet not only the patients, but the patient families and to to really get the chance to form a rapport with a group of people that that you're impacting with your decisions every day. And I, I think that's one of the most empowering things that that you can do in a role like ours. And, and it's it's inspirational and it's just a wonderful place to be. I'm not sure what the future has in store for me yet, but I've certainly learned a lot in our discussion today about how I can set my patients up for success in this field of mental health that is so pervasive to our patient population and, and makes not just a difference in their daily lives, but but will also translate into their physical health ultimately. So I I think that this has just been wonderful. And I'm so pleased that you guys included me in this conversation. So thank you. And yeah, I too just want to thank everybody for joining. Thank you for taking the time today to talk to our listeners about this really important issue that affects so many of our patients. And and to our listeners, I hope that uh, you continue to realize as you're listening to our ACHD series that stents are cool, PVIs are all right, but congenital is awesome. And you should all go into congenital heart disease as a focus in your career. Thank you very much. (laughs) It's the best. Hands down.